So we saw last time God cares, Jesus cares. Now we're going to see Jesus forgive. So let's look together at Mark chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 1 through to verse 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. And so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the the paralyzed man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. So here we are still very early on uh, in the ministry of Jesus as he's coming and announcing good news, announcing the kingdom of God. We've seen that he's been uh, in this town called Capernaum before. He was in the synagogue, if you remember, uh, earlier on in chapter 1. And that day in the life of Jesus there in Capernaum resulted in a huge number of people not only hearing uh, the, about the, the good news of God's kingdom uh, from Jesus' own lips, but people getting released uh, of kind of oppression from evil spirits and people being healed of various diseases. Jesus, um, it, it would appear like the obvious thing to be done at that point is just set up camp and uh, kind of capitalize on all this popularity, start a movement of, of just people gathering to that place. But Jesus is clear, no, I need to go. And he goes, takes the disciples with him, encounters this man with leprosy out in a lonely place. Uh, uh, now we see that Jesus returned uh, to Capernaum, that uh, people uh, regarded it as Jesus' home. So in some respect, he'd made his, his base there. He might even be in his own home um, at that point, though obviously that's not what the text says. Anyway, he's kind of come back um, to his, his base in Galilee, in Capernaum, and we're going to see what took place then. Now, obviously, people have heard him already. People will remember that Jesus came to the synagogue, and if you look back at chapter 1, Jesus was, was teaching in verse 21, and it says that people were amazed at his teaching in verse 22, because he taught them uh, as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. And so they're receiving his teaching, but it's kind of happening in tandem with something else. He's, he's brought freedom to a man who's been oppressed by an evil spirit. And so at the end of that encounter, they're going, wow, this is new teaching and with authority. And he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And now he's back in Capernaum, this time not in the synagogue, but in someone's house. There's that same kind of tandem thing going on. They're, they're hearing him teach, they're hearing him preach, but they're seeing his, his teaching kind of backed up or demonstrated in something that he actually then he does. And so this, 
encounter culminates in him speaking to this man who is paralyzed for one reason or another, whether that was from birth, whether that was from some disease, whether that was from some uh, injury or other that he'd experienced in life. He is completely unable to move. He's completely dependent. We're seeing another occasion where Jesus encounters a man who's absolutely desperate. But the good thing for this guy is he's got some great friends. And so we're familiar with this story. Um, in most kind of uh, beginner Bibles, picture Bibles, this story will make its way kind of in uh, because it's so vivid. It's just got, it's just crying out for a an illustration, a picture of, of this group of people literally digging at the roof. It's just bizarre. We're seeing here first off men of faith that have come with this guy and who is unable to walk. And what I love about this is they are so not British. They so don't do what many of us might do. Uh, we might have some desperate need, some urgent case, and there's only one place we can go to. There's only one person who can help us in this situation. The only problem is, is they're surrounded by others. There's this massive crowd. Now, it might not have been a huge house. It might have been the equivalent of a, of a, uh, a, a Yorkshire terraced house. Um, and... Uh, just a, a, a small room or a small couple of rooms and everybody has crowded in and it's not like there's a neat queue at the door. People are just, the place is rammed. The place is actually absolutely heaving. So as they arrive uh, carrying their paralyzed friend, no one's going to let them through. Everyone is that eager to hear what Jesus has to say. No one um, is about to say, kind of, oh, you know, come on through. Um, after you. All that is just not going to happen um, whatsoever. And even desperate British people probably at that point would say, well, he's, he's busy. Um, he, he need, he's, he's got this kind of teaching slot right here. Uh, a lot of people have come. Um, so we, uh, we need to wait our turn. We'll stand in line. Perhaps what will happen is um, as he and his disciples are, are leaving the building and the meeting is over, maybe at that point we'll just be able to, to grab him. Oh, just, be, just before you go, have you got five minutes uh, to spare? And uh, oh, you know, maybe that would, would work. This, this would be the British way of thinking. But um, Palestinian way of thinking was, right, we've just got to get him to Jesus. This might be our only opportunity. Nothing else matters totally got blinkers on it's they're totally focused on getting this friend to jesus how are they going to do it what wonderful neighbors what wonderful friends to have that they think okay we're gonna have to demolish something it's like a right said fred moment we're gonna have to knock the walls down we're gonna have to do something to get this guy in and um houses then would have been single story um and there would have been a staircase, but the staircase was outside, and the stairs would go up to a flat roof. Um, and that flat roof would not be flimsy. Um, often, you know, people might work up there on the roof um, or rest up there. It, it it was structurally sound. There'd be kind of some thick beams of 
wood, uh, other sticks, m- mud, just kind of like baked in the sun, hardened, solid. You might not be jumping really hard, but certainly this thing was was no piece of paper. This, it wasn't kind of just flimsy f- thatch. So hence, when they when they get up onto the roof, um, they made an opening in the roof. That sounds also delicate and polite, doesn't it? Now what they're doing is digging through it. So Jesus is in the room, is in the house, and he's talking, he's preaching to this group of people who are eager to hear him, and suddenly there's like this almighty sound as someone is trying to break or hammer or dig through the roof. I think, how did Jesus just keep going? Um, did he kind of stop and wait for them to kind of like finish the job and come through? What were people doing underneath as bits fell on them? Whose house was it anyway? Who might be sat there thinking, oh, well, wonderful. That's, are you going to repair this afterwards? And some people are going to point out, well, if it was Jesus' house, which is pure speculation, that might add extra reason for him saying, sons, your sins are forgiven, as soon as he appears <laughs> on the floor <laughs> in front of them. But what we're seeing here is men of faith absolutely determined, not giving up, persevering, dogged, doing anything and everything necessary. Whatever happens today, we are going to be bring our friend before Jesus because he is our friend's only hope of ever walking. Again, this guy will be unable to support himself financially whatsoever. There's no benefit system kind of as such, uh, though perhaps kind of people's goodwill would uh, in the community would try to, to support him. So he can't support himself, he can't support a family, he can't work, he can't serve, he can't move around anywhere by himself. He's completely powerless and he's completely dependent on others, therefore he's completely desperate. And his friends on his behalf are, we've got to grab this moment. We don't know how long Jesus is going to be here uh, before he moves on elsewhere. We're aware that's what we had done before. We'd heard that he'd been at the synagogue and this great healing movement take place, but we were a bit too far back in line. And then the next morning, Jesus decided he would go. Thanks very much. Well, he's back. He's come back. He's just down the road. He's just around the corner. Um, You can find him there. If you get to him, you could be healed. So they've got this absolute dogged uh, determination, a faith that enables them to interrupt Jesus. Sometimes kind of British um, or, or, or kind of just reserved personality can mean actually we could be absolutely desperate about something, but not so persevering when it comes to actually bringing it before Jesus. Um, think, well, I guess we'll just have to go away. We'll just have to wait our turn. We'll just have to come back another time. The Savior is busy right now. Um, so don't bother him. Uh, you've just got to continue to cope. These guys are like, no, we're done with coping. We're done with trying to make this okay. We're, we're done with trying to make something positive out of a bad situation. Whatever happens today, we're bringing this to Jesus. And so there's this powerful and a faith that Jesus can see. By what they do, he can see they have this determined 
faith. So we see men of faith. Who else do we meet in this encounter? Well, for the first time, we also meet the teachers of the law. They're the men of faith. They're the teachers of law. Now, these guys have been referred to already because when, when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, it, he caused such a stir. And so in verse 22, he said, the people were amazed at his teaching. In chapter 1, sorry for running ahead. Uh, the, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So they're referred to there. We don't actually know that they, they were there at that point. This is kind of their first actual appearance. Um, some translations of the Bible will describe them as scribes, which is an accurate translation. Teachers of the law, in a sense, describes, for our benefit, what they did. Um, so they weren't just kind of doing secretarial work um, for rabbis, scribing. They were theological heavyweights, men of learning, of academic acumen. They were the authority on what the law said, what it meant, how to interpret it, how to live it out. And, and so perhaps they've come even from Jerusalem. They've heard about Jesus' popularity. And so they've come like inspectors to check him out, to hear for themselves uh, in the same building, observing, maybe even taking notes, ready to report back on what they have seen and heard. And they are silently pondering to themselves. As soon as Jesus says to this guy who's just been lowered down, uh, son, your sins are forgiven, you can think they're, the kind of the red alert is on, uh, the kind of alarm bells are ringing. You what? By all, man, by all means, heal the guy. But it can it sound strange to us, can't it? The need is physical healing. That's why they lowered him through the roof. Why are you now talking about forgiveness? For them, this big alarm bell is ringing. They are thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Or perhaps that could even just... That could be a question as well. This is blasphemy, surely. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This Galilean upstart is making out that he is in a position to kind of declare, son, your sins are forgiven. And saying, well, that's just totally out of order. Who can forgive sins but God alone. But perhaps there's a, just a little bit more behind it than that. See, for God's people at that time, there was a way of being forgiven for your sins. There was a way of getting right with God. And there, there were people who, if everything was done right, could stand and say, your sins are forgiven. So what people would have to do is go to the temple. Go to Jerusalem, go to the temple, take with you or buy when you get there the relevant animal uh, to sacrifice that will be dependent on what you've done and will be dependent on how much money you've got. Um, so if you don't have enough money, you might just be able to bring sort of pigeons rather than lambs, that kind of thing. But nevertheless, you're, you're, you're taking an animal, you're taking a sacrifice, you're taking it to the temple, you're saying, 
unintentionally or otherwise, I have sinned and I'm presenting this sacrifice so that you, priest, can uh, kill it and sacrifice it on the altar. That Therefore, you, priest, can tell me that my sin has been forgiven, at least until I do another one. Um, so there's a massive system of sacrifice that all kind of headed up towards one day in the year called the Day of Atonement. You can read about it in Leviticus uh, 16, if you like, um, where the whole nation would gather and the high priest would take a couple of goats and one of them would be killed and taken into the temple, taken into the most holy place and the blood uh, sprinkled there and then the, the high priest would be able to come out and everyone's outside kind of, what's going to happen? And the high priest comes out, the sacrifice has been accepted. Uh, I'm back here to tell you that for another year, as a nation, we're in the clear. We've been forgiven. Or for the year that has just gone, we've been forgiven. Oh, thank you. That's great. Wonderful. Right. Back we go. But what happened, what meant that, there's this kind of relentless approach. That wasn't ever going to just be once. It was happening daily. Different people presenting sacrifices. Or once a year, but every year. Um, this sacrifice for atonement being made. And I think people are hungry and eager to hear Jesus again. Because this is what they have not heard before. They've heard the teachers of the law saying, this is what you're not doing. This is how you're messing up. This is what the law says, and therefore this is what you sacrifice. Come again. Come back again next week. Come back again tomorrow. When you mess up again, you need to bring another sacrifice. You need to do it all over again and come back to the Day of Atonement. And we all hope that we'll get through that together. So... Something is happening, but I think people are thirsty to actually know they've been forgiven. It's, it's just tiring. I believe that these are weary worshippers, and it's just got to happen. It's got to happen again. And, okay, we, we've sacrificed, but it's, it's, it's never a done deal. And when we, when we bought uh, this building, the Jubilee Center... Uh, many years ago, uh, it was a synagogue, and downstairs um, there was a ceremonial bath. I meant to bring a photo of it with me, um, but alas, uh, I, I left the slides at home. A ceremonial bath was downstairs, and for different reasons at different times, for different festivals, um, the rabbi or others would have to become ceremonially clean, I can't even say the word, um, by going into this um, this, this, this pool of water. The pool of water, the law dictated, had to be uh, rain-fed. So we've actually still got it. There's this tank outside downstairs which would collect rainwater um, and that rainwater would, would kind of uh, be filtered through and drip down into um, this indoor pond. Um, and that would probably be the best way of describing it because if you actually wanted to get clean... You probably wouldn't use stagnant rainwater um, in which uh, to do it. So um, kind of just looking at this thing, it's, it's a muddy pond. 
But the law says, you dip yourself, immerse yourself in that ceremonial bath, uh, and, and that cleanses you spiritually or outwardly to then conduct whatever rituals or ceremonies then need to take place. And the interesting thing in the photo was that there's this pool in the bath, or, or, or kind of sunk into the floor, there's this ceremony, that's where you get spiritually cleaned up. It's not actually going to help you in any way at all. So next to it was the shower. <laughs> so the rabbi could go from one, kind of, and get, he can't just go out now, kind of go before the people and say, I'm, I'm ready uh, to, to mediate today, I'm ready to serve God, kind of soaking and filthy and possibly a bit smelly. So there was a shower next to it. And I think that's how these people, the people who've come to hear Jesus, are feeling. We have to do this all the time, but it never makes us feel clean. It never brings us to that state of it's all done. It's, oh, they're just having it kind of drummed into them time after time. You're grubby. You're not right. You're not clean. You've messed up again. And the book of Hebrews sums this up neatly um, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. It says here uh, in verse 1, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So the law serves a function. The law is like a signpost pointing all of us to a greater reality. It's a it's a shadow. It indicates that something is ahead, that something is is coming. It's like you know, if you were if you were driving home and you saw a signpost for Sheffield. Let's say you've you travelled further afield. Um, you're travelling down or up the M1 or along the M62 or something. You're you're kind of heading towards Sheffield, um, and you see a signpost saying Sheffield, 34 miles. What do you do at that point? Do you pull over on the hard shoulder, get out of the car, say, look, Sheffield, we're home, we've made it, we're back. I'm not quite sure. No, 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 look, that's what it says, Sheffield. What's that number about? I don't know. That's not important, but we've made it. That's like the law. It's like the, the law is not kind of, yes, we've arrived. It's the Day of Atonement. That's what it's all about. The temple, the sacrifices. Brilliant. It's like, no, just keep, keep going. Jesus is taking us towards a destination. The destination is not this kind of sacrificial system or the law in itself. The law is helpful. It points us in the right direction. Um, but like it says here, it, it's not the reality itself. And so going back to uh, Hebrews 10, for this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered for the worshippers? Uh, would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's where the people are at. There's this 
Endless repetition year after year. It's kind of driving the point home. This was never intended to be the destination. Going up year after year to make sacrifices to kind of just hopefully still receive the favor of God at least for another week or possibly another 12 months. If that way of getting right with God had been completely effective, there would have been some point at which no sacrifice needed to be made. But unfortunately, at that point, that was never the case. So you've got this scenario of of weary worshippers. And that can be what religion, teachers of the law, are kind of driving home. It's interesting, we're seeing here that there's kind of opposition to God, uh, opposition to Jesus here in the form of these religious teachers. Beforehand, it's been Satan himself in the desert, and it's been evil spirits trying to thwart his work. Now, it's, it's kind of, it's teachers of the law, it's guys who should know better. It's the religious establishment, it's the authorities of the day kind of opposing uh, the work of God. Don't you realize that's just the signpost? Kind of keep following in the right direction and you'll kind of arrive at what God wants us to see. But sometimes for all of us, we can get kind of trapped or in our minds anyway, kind of just drifting into a legalistic, very law-based version of Christianity. Some of us have grown up in that and we've had drubbed into us that we are sinful, sinful, sinful. Guilty and unacceptable to God. Whether that was getting into a small booth and confessing my sin, whether that was kind of coming to a a, a religious uh, meeting and just getting that impression or the flavor of what has been taught down the years is kind of, well, you don't give enough. You don't pray enough. You don't witness enough. You don't come enough. You don't serve enough. You don't care enough. And you certainly don't praise enough. It can be the flavor of ugly religion. Teachers of the law. And so kind of just under this weight, or under this cloud of, I'm no good. There's no way through. The one thing that I'm convinced of is, I'm rubbish. Is sometimes what can come through um, experiences that we may have had and therefore be susceptible to drifting back into that way of thinking that the Christian life is somehow endlessly repeating a list of sacrifices. There are meetings to make, uh, there are songs to sing, there are prayers to pray, there's Bible study to be done. This is all a list of of sacrifices, things that you have to do, we have to do in order to experience for a while the the favour or the forgiveness of God. And so perhaps, you know, after we've made a sacrifice of some sort, we might feel, thank goodness, God has now said over me, God has declared, sons, your sins are forgiven-ish for now. There's a sense of, it's, it's just not quite done, is it? Um, I, I, perhaps I've got to do something else. I've, I've got to keep it up. I've got to keep the pace up um, in order to think, okay, I can relax again. I think I'm okay. I think I'm in the clear. At least until 
next week. And some people might think, well, if, if, that's relig- if that's what religion is like, or can often be like, if you're a weary worshipper, just forget this faith. This is ridiculous. Priests, sacrifice, atonement, sin, blood. It's all so primitive. It's all so kind of old world. Why are you messing around with that? Religion sucks. Well, then forget about it. Um, and that's the kind of the postmodern way. Is you, you don't you don't need that now. But we might think that priests and sacrifices and atonement and sin is all to be forgotten. Just do your own thing. But whether you are a believer or not in Jesus Christ, whether you count yourself a Christian uh, or whether you wouldn't, the whole world is, in one way or another, trying to deal with guilt. And so this is what was happening here. People felt guilty, so they'd make a sacrifice. Now there are perhaps lots of secular priests, lots of secular practices or sacrifices that we can be kind of drawn into to try and help get rid of guilty feelings, let go of past mistakes. I need to learn to forgive myself. Uh, Somehow... uh, uh, perhaps I'm, uh, there might be some particular therapy or counselling that's available to me that well, they'll, they'll kind of be my priest. Uh, if I go to them, uh, it will be an opportunity to kind of have a hearing, uh, get some stuff off my chest, and, and that will just help me for a while. It will help me for the next week or the next fortnight, but then the same stuff comes back. I've got to go back again. I've got to kind of relive again kind of what's gone on in life. And, and maybe at, at some point, uh, I can get free, but there's this endless kind of battle in our mind. Ah, oh, that can kind of just go unresolved. And perhaps that kind of battle for many people is what's reflected in actually there is a draw to spiritual rituals. Uh, they do have an appeal. They do feel reassuring. Well, at least I get to do something. I get to contribute in some way. It's kind of more, it's more tangible. If I have to do something, go somewhere, speak to the priest and offer something and then come back next week, at least I know that I'm doing something and it, that in itself, I've, uh, there's this system and it kind of reassures me. Right, I'm okay. I can, I can, I can cope. I can keep going. Um, whether those, those systems have a particularly uh, religious feel about them or not. So they are, people are hungry. Hungry for genuine forgiveness, for genuine freedom from that kind of internal strife of, of kind of thoughts that on the one hand accuse me and I, I'm aware of, of, of what I've done or what I haven't done that really isn't up to the mark. I'm aware of ways in which I've hurt others or or what have you. Uh, and then on the other hand, there's, there's ways in which perhaps I'm, I, I, I'm kind of defending myself. And I'm like, no, just remember, you, you, you did do that, and you did offer that, and you did help there. And um, you know, you've looked back at your past, and you've, you've seen how kind of some of what you've done is as a result of past experience. And, and, and kind of you've been working through that and, and kind of heading to this point. No, so I, I think I'm okay. I think I'm in the clear. I think I'm justified. I think whether I believe in God or not, I think I'm all right. But old age religion 
or new age spirituality doesn't solve the problem. The teachers of the law don't have ultimately a solution uh, to offer. It is just, no, this is the system we've been given. So you stick with this. You come back to the temple. You keep going with those sacrifices. It's never a done deal. So come on, keep up. You're, you're falling off. And so some people are running to try and catch up all the time. Got to get right with God. Got to get right with God. And some people just think, oh, sack it. I can't be done anymore. Religion, who cares? I'm out of here. Well, let's come and see now Jesus, the son of man. He sees what the teachers of the law uh, were thinking. No doubt he understood what the people were hungry for as well. Maybe it's even been on this subject that he's been teaching before he was so rudely interrupted before a guy comes through the ceiling um, lying on a mat. And so rather than kind of be all Western about it and think, oh, my, my teaching has been interrupted. Please, back in line over there. He's like, no, actually, this is an opportunity. This is a moment. I'm going to heal him. I can see his faith, but there's something else that I want to draw attention to by declaring, son, your sins are forgiven. So it says in verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? He poses them a question. This is not a conversation. He's just aware of what these teachers of the law are thinking. They're not bold enough yet to, um, to challenge him openly. Um, but Jesus knows what's going on. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up, take your mats and walk. Now, for either of those sayings, to be effective, is a miracle. It's a miracle for someone's sins to actually be forgiven. It's also a miracle for someone to actually stand up and take up their mat and walk out of the building if uh, you've said to them, get up, take your mat and, and, and go home. So which is easier and which is more difficult? Well, in a sense, the more difficult thing is, it's more difficult to say, get up, take your mat and walk, because it will be very clear if that's worked or not. Either he does stand up and he leaves, walking on legs that he might never have used before, or he doesn't. If he doesn't, it's, Jesus has no authority to heal. So he's saying, look, I'm healing this man. I've got authority to heal him. And that's to demonstrate that I've also got authority to do something that you can't see with your eyes. You can't test it. You can't work it out because it's happening on the inside or it's a declaration from heaven. But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins so that you know that I can forgive and do it completely. I'm saying to this man, right now, stand up, take your mat and go home. That's what happens here. He has authority to heal he ha- which points to the fact he has authority as well to forgive. This is amazing. It's amazed everyone, it said in verse 12, as indeed the guy got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. They amazed everyone and they praised God, saying we've never seen anything like this. Jesus heals. Jesus really does 
But Jesus is throwing light on this other massive issue. This is no longer, Jesus is declaring, it's no longer the case of going to the temple, taking another sacrifice, year after year or week after week, going to the priest, right, your sins are forgiven, right, come back next week, okay, your sins are forgiven, okay, come back next week, yep, okay, your sins are forgiven, okay, thank you, right, am I really... I'm not really sure. I have to do this all the time. What's really um, going on? Jesus is showing that I'm bringing in a completely new kingdom, a completely new state of affairs. You don't have to endlessly repeat the same things. Forgiveness is available in Jesus. In an ordinary house, in an ordinary town, you can meet Jesus and you can say, Son, your sins are Forgiven. It's not a special ritual. It's not a special pilgrimage. It's not a special service. You don't have to speak to a special priest. You just come to Jesus. And again, this is what the writer to um, the Hebrews in the book of Hebrews is, is making plain. We saw there in chapter 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. The law is important, but it's limited. It was never intended to provide some permanent solution to the problem of sin. And so now, having looked at the the, the, the law and what it couldn't do, uh, the author here looks at Jesus and what Jesus can do and has done. And so in verse 11, we see there, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that is Jesus, had offered for, note this, all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This is what Jesus can do that the law never could. This is what Jesus can do that no therapy or secular priest can do either. He has offered himself as a sacrifice for all time. It doesn't need repeating. For all sin, it's sufficient for all of us and for all of life. Maybe it's writing there to kind of Jewish uh, believers in Jesus who've just got weary. Do you know what? It wasn't ideal, but in some ways, going up to the temple all the time, it kind of provided us with some reassurance. You know, okay, I've been forgiven. I've done something, so I'm able to, uh, to, 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 to put some effort and make a sacrifice. Right, that, that's what puts me at ease. What puts me at ease now? I don't really know, because I don't have to go to the temple anymore. I'm a bit stumped. I'm a bit lost. If this is kind of... And so he's kind of driving the point home. No, the reason that you don't have to go and do that... The, the reason that it's not some endless program of bloodlet is because what Jesus has already done was enough for you for all time. He never has to repeat it. So he goes on in verse 17. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brothers, 
since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, saying, actually, that weary worship gets replaced by by a confidence, a confidence by God before God, a clear conscience on the inside, a courage to serve God and encourage others to do the same. That kind of battle for the mind, that kind of sense of am I am I good enough? Am I okay? Am I through? Am I clear for another year? And that's for those who are in Christ. That is gone. Now it doesn't mean that we never ever need now to confess or repent of sin but when we do it's like coming before God and saying father this that I've done I turn away from it I forgive it and I I ask you to forgive me for it reckoning that it has it's been placed on Jesus he has already made the sacrifice so I just wonder today if in amongst the, the busyness of life, in amongst lots going on, there's a sense today of just actually, do you know what? If I really am honest, I'm just hungry. I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I'm eager. To come and be with Jesus. To know that restored intimacy again. Because actually what's happened is, I ha- I've kind of drifted from grace back into law. And therefore, it's almost like everything's just become a sacrifice. Everything's become burdensome. Everything's become um, uh, weary. And I, I want to come again, just kind of come back to my senses. Um, and perhaps for some it's... It's receiving what's, what's never been uh, kind of really known or experienced before. That sense of actually a conscience that's been made clear. It doesn't mean that as I look back in life, I kind of admire my own track record. Now, I know there are things that are pretty gloomy about it. But now the focus has been taken off me and how am I doing. The focus is on what Christ and what he has done once and for all. And what he's done once and for all means that we can approach him with absolute confidence. He is a God, yes, who, who heals, who moves in works of power. And he is a God who forgives. It's simply a case of coming to him. Not kind of running the treadmill of lots of spiritual disciplines to do in order that I might feel forgiven. No, it's, it's done. It's dealt with. We're here. It's like breathing just fresh air again. I, I don't have to kind of run to catch up. I, I don't have to now perform to earn approval. It's been done for me. I'm coming, I'm coming to Jesus.